Welcome to Mount Podmore, the political podcast of the Rapid City Journal. I'm your host, Seth Tupper, and our guest today is retired Circuit Court Judge Tim Bjorkman from Canastota, who is a Democrat seeking the nomination to run for the U.S. House. I wanted to, uh, I invited you to talk about the uh, gun law reforms that you recently proposed. Um, You put out a, uh, what I guess I'd call a policy paper on your website. And um, before we get into the specifics, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your philosophical approach to the problem of mass shootings. And in the days since the uh, February 14th mass shootings at a high school in Florida, I've heard a lot of Republican politicians say that we need mental health reform and we need better security at schools. Um, but we do not need uh, reforms to gun laws. You've said we do need some reforms to gun laws. Why do you feel that way? Well, you know, first of all, I I think that our goal should be to try to enact legislation that keeps our communities safe and our children safe in schools. And uh, to do that without trampling on the rights of the vast majority of lawful gun owners. And uh, I, I think that... What I aim to do is advocate steps, first steps that we can take that are aimed at reaching a broad consensus um, among South Dakotans and and really among Americans. And I think it's of note that the president identified some of the same things yesterday that I had identified in my uh, policy statement. I'm I'm like a lot of small-town South Dakotans, Seth. I grew up in rural South Dakota on guns. Uh, I'm an occasional hunter. As a judge, um, I have a deep respect for the rule of law. And and, uh, at the top of that uh, law is the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, which I support uh, as all of them. Uh, Three of our own sons served in the military, and while they were there, they received extensive training in how to handle uh, the type of weapons that are some of the focus of our uh, current discussion, but but really, I saw the effects of violence, and that the people who acted violent violently in matters that I had to address that so often they sh- had showed a violent propensity uh, over the months and often over the years prior to ending up in front of me. And so, one of the things we need to do is spend a lot more time focusing on those people with violent propensities who are sending us signals. So first, a little bit of perspective. It's staggering that we've had more people die from gun violence in our nation since 1970 than in all American wars combined. And almost two in three of those 33,500 gun deaths annually that take place in America uh, are as a result of suicide. Now. The mental health discussion comes in most prominently, in my view, with regard to suicidal deaths, Seth, and that's because the data shows that something on the order of 90% of those who take their own lives suffered from a mental illness, depression, disorder of some sort. But the data doesn't support mental illness as a cause for the vast number of homicidal deaths, that is, deaths when people kill others. In fact, I think it's an 
unfair claim to stigmatize uh, people with mental disorders because the statistics just don't support um, that that's a significant role in homicidal deaths. And so what does that tell you then if, 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 if mental illness isn't a significant role in homicidal deaths? Um, is that why we need gun law reforms? Well, it tells me a couple of things. First of all, so I, I join with those people who uh, speak with regard to the need for improved mental illness. That's something I've spoken about since the day I entered this race. Improved mental illness uh, treatment, access to care, dealing with mental uh, illness that so often underlies the addiction problems we suffer. And yes, it does lead uh, to many of the suicidal deaths. But that's, and, and, and it's interesting that those proponents of uh, mental health as the cause for our violent uh, mass shootings have employed their efforts to reduce mental health funding and to repeal the laws that provide for mental health and addiction treatment in every health policy. So there's a little inconsistency there in my view. But turning to the, back to the issue of violence uh, with guns, of the 11,000 homicides we have, about 1,700 are women killed as a result of domestic violence. And there's a lot of data that's showing that in mass shootings, uh, close to 60% of them involved uh, killing a family member or a current or former uh, intimate or the shooter. So you can't get away from uh, the, the propensity toward violence it often starts in a domestic setting. Now, we've experienced about 320 deaths annually over the last five years from mass shootings, which uh, generally are defined as shootings with four or more people uh, being killed. Um, and those are the ones right now that are the focus of most of the attention. And, you know, so the first steps that I've advocated uh, have to do with, first of all, a mandatory uniform background check on all gun sales. Well, uh, not uh, just, uh, yeah, that's, I, I see that's the first proposal you listed in your paper. And yeah, if you, I wanted to kind of go one by one on these and, 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 and look at them. And so what, mandating a, a, a uniform background check on all gun sales, um, let, let's say that's enacted. And I'm curious about how that, that works in the real world. You know, if I go to a gun show, for example, here in Rapid City and I try to buy a gun, if there's a law mandating uniform background checks on all gun sales, what, what happens then? Well, that's one of the things that opponents of uh, all private sale background checks uh, have pointed to. So what I want to do is make it as, as uh, efficient and painless and seek for as great a compliance as possible. So for private transfers, first of all, gun shows, uh, those should go through the same background checks as, as any other gun dealer has to go through. But a private uh, gun sale, let's say you want to sell a gun to me, Seth, uh, that happens a lot of times, and people don't want to have to pay 30 to $50, $15 in some cases, to have a, a background check done. Um, I think there's a legitimate role of government in protecting the public safety that those be done uh, through law enforcement at no cost. I think it's also, you know, prudent to have an estate uh, transfer so that uh, I could leave my guns uh, to my sons 
without going through that background check. But otherwise, um, it should be uniform. But would there be a, would you propose then a penalty? You know, uh, as you say, there are a lot of private sales and a lot of them that if, if they don't come forward, the government would never know about. So uh, w- would you propose then what, maybe a penalty if, if it's found out that somebody sold a gun privately without a background check? Or how do you enforce that? Well, of course, there has to be a penalty for violating the law. And uh, uh, it has to be enforced. So that if I, ha- if I have a gun in my possession, that, uh, or if it comes out that I sold a gun without having gone through the required background check, I should be held criminally accountable, just like a dealer would be. Mm-hmm. You, you've also proposed uh, prohibiting any device such as bump stocks that convert a semi-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon. And I guess some people would ask, um, why not go farther? Why not just ban the ownership of semi-automatic weapons like the AR-15 that was used in the, in the Florida high school shooting? Right. I think those are all legitimate topics for debate, Seth. Again, what, what I'm trying to do is to propose immediate measures that would have some broad consensus. We can talk about and debate about um, whether uh, clips should be limited to, say, 10 rounds or 15 rounds or 5 rounds. We can talk about whether uh, semi-automatic guns of all sorts should be uh, prohibited. But the focus of this proposal is to set out first steps that we should all be able to agree on, or at least the vast number of South Dakotans should be able to agree on, gun owners, non-gun owners alike. Okay. Um, Another point you made is uh, prohibiting people on the government's terrorist watch list from buying firearms. This has been something that many people for for years now have said, scratched their heads and said, you know, how is this not enacted already? What's your take on that? How, How is it that we haven't been able to gather up the political will to to prohibit people on the terrorist watch list from buying firearms? Well, I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to justify other than um, speaking to the extraordinary power of the NRA to control legislative decisions in this country. Uh, it's, it's stunning to think about all the discussion of foreign terrorists in our, within our borders but then to say that, but if they get within our borders and we are suspicious of them and so that we won't let them get on a plane, but they can go and buy whatever assault rifles they want, that, that is really an absurd outcome. Yeah. Doesn't the fact that we haven't, as a country, been able to take care of that problem, does that discourage you from, from believing that any of your other proposals will, would, would get any traction? No, I mean, I, I really think that this moment uh, is pivotal. There's change coming, you know, all across the state, and I think across the nation, people are very fed up. And it's not just the NRA, Seth. It's, you know, a wide variety of issues. Progress on solving our biggest problems is blocked time and again by the special interests that control Washington. And uh, our congressmen rely on that kind of PAC money to get into office, and then they find when they get there that that's a great way to keep them in office. And so they build these enormous war chests. And uh, 
we have something like a 15% approval rating in Congress, but a 90% re-election rate for them. So pretty clear to me that we have a lot of people we're not happy with that we're having a very hard time firing. And I will tell you that I hear everywhere I go uh, how strongly people like me believe in congressional term limits. That, that is the number one unspoken issue in this campaign. How would you propose that, and how, how long of the term limits would you would you uh, prefer? Well, not only would I, I, um, I issued a press release uh, supporting constitutional term limits months and months ago, Seth. Okay. And, uh, you know, I believe in uh, three terms for Congress, two terms for senator. The one thing you do uh, right away is you have a senator with the second six years of his or her service totally unbeholden to special interests. Right now we have senators um, who and congressmen spending half or more of their time while in office, Seth, raising money. During the time that they're in session, they will go from a vote over to the Democratic and Republican National Congressional Committee offices dialing for dollars. It's an offensive system. Uh, we should not be paying, paying our congressmen uh, to sustain themselves in office by raising money like that. And one of the ways, one of the ways uh, to keep fresh ideas um, and a younger generation of public servants um, in office is to, is to have that kind of change. You know, I'm, uh, as a small-town South Dakota lawyer, I set up lots and lots of um, community groups, and we always had term limits there. Um, my own life reflects term limits. I served on our church board and under term limits rules for years, and I served on the parole board one term, and as a judge, a little more than one term. And those were purposeful, because I think it's important to have fresh ideas, and I, I reject the, the thinking that there are only a few select South Dakotans who can serve us in Congress. We have a lot of people who can serve. We need to keep the lanes open for them to and keep the ideas fresh. Uh, getting back to some of your gun proposals, you've uh, a couple others. Others you've proposed uh, individually were uh, red flag laws to allow a court to tempor temporarily remove guns from people who pose a danger to themselves or others. Um, you proposed uh, interventions like uh, uh, you mentioned the Sandy Hook promise. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What um, what, what kind of interventions um, you're talking about? Sure, I'll, I'll answer that, and then I'll dovetail back to those red flag laws you mentioned. <clears throat> well, the Sandy Hook interventions, again, aim to focus at kids who are disaffected, left out, being bullied. Uh, the kids who go off alone like this uh, young man in Florida reportedly did and were, were ostracized by the group. Um, and they try to focus on uh, reaching out to those kind of at-risk kids. Again... It's very important to think in terms of the reality. We have all this information about people who demonstrated a propensity toward violence. And this young man in Florida did the same thing. And in fact, in, in all school shooting cases, something like 60% of those cases of school shootings, someone knew. Someone knew that that person was going to, to carry out shooting and didn't intervene. And so 
The Sandy Hook Promise tries to identify those individuals with violent propensities and, and, and uh, tries to in, in, introduce to them some uh, attention and care. Because that's one thing that's so clear uh, to me as a judge. We're leaving out a lot of kids in society, Seth, and they're in every schoolroom all across the state, all across America. And uh, they come and often they often come from really bad homes, but you know they're 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 different from the other kids. They may smell differently. They may be disheveled, and they get ostracized. And uh, there could be a whole bunch of reasons for that. But Sandy Hook attempts to look at things like restorative justice, so that when there's a wrong done in the school setting uh, to to a kid who's maybe bullied, that they work out with the with the child who was picked on and the offender. They work together to try to resolve those issues. Okay. Well, there, there's that kind of intervention, and then there's another level um, with the red flag laws that you've referenced, um, where where a court could step in apparently and and, and temporarily temporarily remove guns from people who pose a danger to themselves or others. Um, right. To play play devil's advocate here, doesn't that subject somebody's you know constitutional Second Amendment rights to a pretty subjective uh, standard of, of saying whether somebody's a danger to themselves or others? How, how, would, how can that be managed? Well, you know, we've got a great model already in the protection order system that uh, many states, including South Dakota, have adopted. And, uh, in fact, when a judge issues a, protective, a protection order for domestic violence uh, already, that person is prohibited by federal law under the Lautenberg Amendment from owning a firearm. So that when that person is convicted of even a misdemeanor of domestic violence or has a protection order entered against them, uh, that person's already prohibited federally from owning a firearm. The thing about uh, uh, the red flag laws that several states have adopted is it would follow pretty much that same pattern of our protection orders, Seth, in that a person would submit an affidavit to a judge. Uh, who would make a temporary order for a very short time if the alleged facts warranted it. And that's, that's the same kind of decisions judges make in protection order cases all across America. So there's an established pattern. There's a hearing that's held very sh uh, soon after, usually within a matter of just a few days. Uh, the due process rights of the individual uh, are fully protected uh, in that kind of a setting. It's, a, it's an evidentiary hearing where the court hears evidence from both parties and other witnesses. Uh, either party may call. You have a right to have a lawyer present and represent you. So, but no, I, I don't think that that's uh, I don't think that that's a due process problem. I think it, I think due process is very well covered. But I, I do think that we need to be mindful of this. Anything that that uh, we do to temporarily remove guns from a person who appears to oppose a, dan to oppose a danger. We also have to have a, a due process, uh, you know, simple expedited type of hearing that allows for that uh, to be lifted upon, you know, valid evidence. Okay. And to keep safe, that's, that's just a basic thing we need to do to keep guns out of the hands of people who pose a distinct danger that we can identify. You've also, uh, another part of your, your plan that you unveiled on gun law reforms is you called for what you 
termed as a, a war on mental illness. Um, what do you envision that uh, being? How, what, what does that mean? Well, several things. First of all, in South Dakota, we have, we have a particularly striking lack of mental health providers. Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, in its report, rated South Dakota as having the fewest mental health providers per capita of any state in the nation, and second place isn't close. We have 15% by their estimates of needed mental health providers, and I saw it in the court system. We have an enormous uh, problem with, with people who come into the court system with significant mental health problems that were untreated. And our jails are, are one out of every six jail inmates, according to a study your paper did in 2015, uh, one out of six jail inmates has a serious mental illness. So our, our counties are paying for these people to be housed but not treated uh, with any uh, regularity. And uh, they often go to prison that way so that we house roughly twice as many people who have mental, a severe mental illness in our jails and prisons today, Seth, in South Dakota, as we do in mental facilities. So, so what's the solution here? Because it, it is, it, we've had a we've had a lot of ongoing stories and coverage here about the lack of mental health uh, professionals right. in Western South Dakota, but nothing has really, uh, you know, there've been some efforts, but the the problem has persisted. Um, so is that a, a government role to step in, and, and and how do you how do you fix that? Well, as I, as I said uh, earlier at the outset, and as I said the night I announced for this office, one thing about the Affordable Care Act, which did not get repealed uh, with a Republican majority in each house and, and the uh, Republican president, is that it provided coverage, mandatory coverage for mental health and addiction treatment in every policy. And what we saw is people pouring in to get uh, deferred maintenance for mental health and addiction, among other health care problems. We have a very sick population, and uh, it's, it's extremely penny-wise and pound-foolish for us not to get them treatment. Even in our own state, the vast number of people who came before me lacked that kind of, of care before they got into the court system and didn't get much in it. So the first thing that we should be working on doing is making sure that we have affordable health care for every American. Uh, we need we treat everybody in this nation eventually, Seth. It's just that the, the poor and those left out of the health care process get their treatment in our emergency rooms, in our jails, and in our prisons. And it's often after many, many problems have happened and when treatment isn't, as a, they're not as amenable to treatment and at far greater cost. And so, but, but what do you do to, I mean, it's one thing to have coverage, but that doesn't do any good if the nearest provider is 300 miles away. So how, how do you solve that problem? Well, again, uh, that's the other part of it. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we need to beef up our providers in this, in this state. And uh, the, pro the reason we don't have many providers in this state is we don't have coverage for people who have the mental illness. So as we, as we have access to health care for these people, uh, we're going to have more providers come in to fill the need. I think it's a, it's a chicken and egg thing, Seth. We don't have, in this case, for example, we don't have access for 40 to 50,000 South Dakotans uh, 
who don't have private health coverage and yet don't qualify for Medicaid because they don't have a, a, a child in the home who's dependent on them. So we have this big group of people in need of mental health care, and they're the ones who are filling our prisons and our jails, but they don't have access to health care. If we had health care coverage that they could buy into, we would see providers start coming to South Dakota to fill that need. But the other thing is, uh, when I talk about declaring war on mental illness, um, I think we really need to emphasize and encourage uh, students, you know, the young generation coming up to help fill those needs in our healthcare system. And I think we do that by incentivizing uh, people to go into child psychiatry, uh, being psychologists, uh, and so on. Because what, what we don't understand with all the talk about workforce development, the large percentage of people we have who are neither working nor looking for work and aren't able to hold a job because they're struggling with mental health and with addiction that it often leads to. That's stunting our economic development all across the state. And so the first thing is we need to have access that's affordable for these people for coverage. And then as we uh, have more need for coverage, we're going to see more providers coming in to fill the gaps. All right. I want to hit the, the last point you made in your proposals on gun law reforms was removing the ban on the Centers for Disease Control studying firearm violence. Is this an issue like um, with the terrorist watch list or whatever where, where you feel like special interests have, have, stopped, um, have stopped that from happening? Well, I don't think there's any question that they did, Seth. And you know, the, the uh, anything that throttles the free exchange of information, especially when our federal government, uh, uh, who serve us, is the one trying to generate it, that's very troubling to me. Uh, we we've lost maybe 20 years of data. I think this this effort started in about '96 to throttle the CDC from funding uh, studies for firearm violence. So we we've lost a whole couple of decades of data that could have been generated. And uh, we've relied on private entities uh, like Every Town for Gun Safety and others to, to fill that gap. But uh, there's much more to be done. Okay. I think it all comes down to this, though. We need to have a thoughtful, respectful discussion unimpeded by special interests about gun violence. And, you know, our time on Earth is so fleeting, we're all going to be gone and forgotten in a few years, but what we do now or what we fail to do is going to determine the kind of America we, we leave behind for our children, your children, and our grandchildren. And so maybe the most troubling thing of all to me is just how does our congressional delegation rationalize to themselves their silence on gun reform in the midst of these little children being slaughtered? As our representatives in Congress, shouldn't we expect them to lead the discussion here in South Dakota? And, and, and I would also invite Dusty and Chantel, who seek to be our lone representative, to share their views on these issues. And I think the press has a role in, in asking every candidate to provide in writing what their position is on these issues and give them three or four days and publish the results of those responses. Well, and that's that's the role we're trying to play here, and uh, 
I think that's about uh, as much time as we uh, have for today, and uh, that's a good place to end. And thank you for coming on and discussing all this with me. Thanks for having me, Seth. Great talking with you. You bet.